0: Hello and welcome to this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. Today we are going to be reviewing the new movie, the new Netflix film from Aaron Sorkin, who both is the writer and director of The Trial of the Chicago 7 and then we are gonna wrap it all up with our top five screenwriters.
1: We want to underscore again that we're coming to Chicago peacefully, but whether we're given permits or not, we're coming. We're going to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. And there's no place to be right now but in it.
2: We watched for a decade while these rebels without a job tell us how to prosecute a war. They're gonna spend their 30s in a federal facility, real time.
1: People say, you know, Abby, are you concerned about an overreaction from the cops? Holy shit. <laughs> you all right?
3: No words Abby until wouldn't... I saw that. Are the people ready to make opening arguments? At the defense table, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Dave Dellinger, Rennie Davis, Lee Weiner, John Froines, Tom Hayden, and Bobby Seale. These defendants had a plan, and the plan was to incite a riot. I call this portion of the trial with friends like these. <laughs> my trial's
1: begun without my lawyer. The court assumes you are being represented by the Black Panther sitting behind you. The riots were started by the Chicago Police Department. Sustained. Nobody objected. six and 11. This very a
0: important episode is being six sponsored six. by Dean Tromble. You may know him as the Mattress Man from D&D Mattresses. Uh, he wanted our audience to know that uh, they're having a sale on mattresses this week. There's the Queen mattress sets for just $99 and the King sets for only $129. That, those are some amazing, to me, it sounds like 2002 <clears throat> prices right yeah, there. Yeah, that sounds, so uh, that's, should...
1: I, I would advise our, our listeners to not buy a mattress that cheap.
2: Well, I have both the Queen and the King in my house. Oh, of course you do.
0: That's well, I buy all
2: my mattresses there. We got them for free because uh, Dean
0: is such a good guy, and uh, yeah, he lets us try them out. And I've I've never slept better. Charming. Have
1: you ever spoken to Dean on the phone?
0: <laughs> yeah, he's he never lets you get a word yeah. in. Yeah. He's a bit abrasive. I'm gonna
1: just I mean like I, I prefer uh, to do things they... by email with with Dean, but. Uh... <laughs>
2: he's a salesman though yeah. he's a salesman it's funny because I bought the mattress and then all of a sudden he was selling me all sorts of other stuff and see I found with- I found him through back channels okay
0: yeah. that makes sense so yeah. he, he was sort of secondary but I bought the mattresses you know
1: to keep him quiet smart to expand from Vegas to internationally you know yeah so there you go so if you wanted real cheap mattress
0: check out our friend the mattress man all that right today Today, guys, we are going to be talking about Aaron Sorkin's newest film, um, The Trial of the Chicago 7, and sort of a brief background of the film. Um, it's the Democratic Convention of, God, I don't even remember what year. 1968. 60, 1968, and a bunch of protesters go to the Democratic Convention, and um Long story short, some of them get arrested. We sort of see the whole movie through uh, flashback, flashbacks as we are at this trial. So there's a lot, like most of most of what we could be talking about is sort of how appropriate this movie is to our times and how it's related and draw the parallels there. But being sort of a film centric podcast. I would like to talk about... Sort of one. Sort of, yeah. Uh, (laughs) I would like to talk about Aaron Sorkin specifically. And as we know him mostly as a writer, hence why our sort of top five is top five uh, screenwriters. But he has directed his own films before. And I'm going to... What I'm going to do is I'm going to say a statement. And you guys can either overrule me or have my motion sustained. So I'm going to say Aaron, Aaron Sorkin should never direct his own scripts. Will you overrule that or would you sustain that?
1: Uh, overruled.
0: Care to explain?
1: Yeah, look, I don't, I don't think um, I think never is a, is a hard word here. Uh, I don't know that I would say never. I mm-hmm. definitely get what you're saying and where you're coming from. Um, I think this is a larger discussion that I would love to have. Maybe we could use the sort of second part of this discussion to talk more generally before our top five about writers who go on to direct stuff. Um, but I think it's a larger conversation to have. It's an interesting one. Um, I always think of David Mamet, for example, when this conversation comes up because he's one of my favorite, um, you know, kind of people in film. I've read a couple of books About movies that he's written. He is a pretty good screenwriter. He's, he's, he's written some great plays. Um, but literally when he directs a movie, his dialogue sounds differently, sounds different. His actors speak his dialogue in this very strange way. Um, so much so that like, it's really difficult to absorb. And I think, I don't, I know we're talking about Sorkin here, but I, I I definitely feel that way about Mammoth. Just that like, having somebody else's touch on the directorial side just makes all the difference. And I don't know if I feel as strongly about Sorkin, you know, he hasn't directed, he's only directed two movies, whereas Mamet's directed a bunch. Um, but you know, maybe it's easier to make that call based on that. But, um, I, I wouldn't say never, I think never is too, too strong a word. And I think he's shown enough promise as a director that I, I would be careful about that.
2: Okay. Yeah, I think, Jeremy, if you phrased the question saying Aaron Sorkin should try to find another director first before he directs his own movies... That's then not as interesting a statement. Of course not. Then I would sustain it. But Chapin brings up a good point. To say never is not really fair. And I actually... I will overrule the statement in large part due to what I saw in the trial of of Chicago 7 and how I think he's grown as a director between um, Molly's Game and this. Um, you know, there, there, there's obviously something very electric about Sorkin's scripts, specifically his dialogue, the way his characters are written, uh, the likability of a lot of his characters, even the ones that aren't necessarily supposed to be likable, That is some, that you can very easily be entertained by, if nothing else. And that is that exists in all of his movies, both the ones he's just written and the ones that he's written and directed the question is really just how well does he translate his scripts which everybody can agree are, are are often really great how well can he translate those as a director into a into a well-structured and well-formulated formulated film and again i think there's a lot of discussion we can have about this movie in particular and sorkin's career when it comes to that but to say that he should never direct his own stuff i think he proved with trial of the chicago, chicago 7 that that statement should be overruled because He's learning, I guess, is the simplest way to put it. I had a lot of issues I, with how Molly's Game was directed, and I had less of those same issues with Trial of the Chicago 7.
1: Even though your main complaint about Molly Game, Molly's Game is a st- script issue.
2: No. Well, no. We'll, we'll get uh,
0: into Molly's Game, but I'm going to answer my own okay. question real quick um, because I do think that's sort of a dramatic statement Um in the vein of a Sorkin sort of dialogue, but I would I would sustain it. And the reason I would sustain it is because I think he's such a good writer that if he gets a Fincher to direct his stuff or, you know, whatever, name, name your favorite director.
2: Rob it's only, Reiner. It's
0: only going to get Danny better. Boyle. He's never going to get to that level. So if you're going to have such good scripts, I would love to see them just be all that they can be rather than okay. be slightly less than
1: that. Fair enough. But I do think there's a distinction here with what he chooses to direct and what he writes. And I I, I see a huge difference in the two films he's directed. I mean, obviously there's a difference between the two of them, but I think the type of movies he's, he decides to direct are much different than his sort of writing projects. And I think when you consider that, you have to sort of factor that, that into that statement. I feel like Jeremy. Like I don't know that he would have directed The Social Network or uh, he would have directed Moneyball or he would have directed Steve Jobs. He wrote those movies, but maybe he wrote these movies knowing he wrote the two movies he directed, knowing he would direct them. I mean, I think that's a di- there's a different a different muscle that you use. I certainly feel that way.
0: Yeah, I also think like I think. Between Molly's Game and The Trial of Chicago 7, I think there's some improvement in his direction, but I also think somebody else needs to tell him about uh, editing uh, a a bit, and I think that's the biggest problem with this in, in his not necessarily his direction, but him as the controller of this piece, is he didn't pare it down where it needed to be pared down, especially towards the beginning. There were some scenes that sort of dragged on and on, and I think it, they dragged on and on so he could hear his own dialogue being said, even when the scenes became sort of pointless.
2: Well, I th- so I think he got to a point in his career And basically kind of, and I don't know, I'm speculating, but I think he kind of got to this point, and he's like, I've been around this, I've seen how this is done, I'd like to take a shot at directing one of my own scripts. And, you know, he was successful in terms of, I mean, critically, and I I don't know how Molly's Game did commercially, but I think it did well. Um, Basically, basically he was successful in in that area, so he kept doing it. He felt like he liked doing it I guess and I don't, I don't think it was just a, a question of like Molly's Game was the first script he had where he felt like he was the one that was supposed to direct that um, but I Molly's mean, Game was
0: was a script that's harder for him to screw up than this one is because Molly's Game is just a fun movie I think I, it's a lot in my opinion it's a lot better of a movie than this it's a lot more entertaining of a movie than this I think he goes thank you, I, I, you
1: what? thank you
0: you agree yeah
2: I I, I I like Molly's game I know Lee hates it but I like Molly's I like game Molly's too game. no wrong I like Molly. should we just get in, should we get this out of the way I like, I, I like Molly's game Molly's game is not a well-made movie Molly's game is a fascinating entertaining story that is that is told to us but in, I don't in a think witty fashion is, and that's fine it's entertaining but it's not a well-made movie, is Whereas this a well-made movie? 7, it's it's better made than Molly's game. And it's not perfect. It's got flaws, and it has things that that uh, Sorkin needs to work on as a director and editor. Uh, he needs to work on his tone, his pacing. There's all sorts of things that that appear to be a director that hasn't fully honed his craft as a director yet. But Molly's Game looks like a screenwriter tried to direct his script, and that's exactly what it is. And that's, that's fine for what it is because it's a, such an entertaining story. But I said this to you, Jeremy, like Molly's Game could have been a... a transformative movie it could have been an all-timer with the right director because that story Mm. is so good yes it definitely could have but instead it's just all
1: voiceover it's just i feel like it's a minor movie and not in in a bad way but it's just it's it's kind of a b movie it's just you know it's it's not okay it's not like this fine
2: i like it too I like it too. I think it's an interesting movie. I think it's fun to watch. All of those things are right, but to say that that's a well-made movie is just wrong. Like it's not. And again, because of how the way you're describing it, Chapin, that's fine. That's acceptable.
1: Right. He's right. dealing with but that's what a I, little
2: bit more serious subject matter here with Trial of Chicago Seven. So he's put more on his plate as a result. And yeah, let's uh, let's get into it. I mean, I think I think that. This this movie, to me, felt like a, a director who graduated from one who was incapable of translating his own work as a director and into someone who is a perfectly competent director, but still has a ways to go before he's... Um, not even before he's a great director. Before he is a good director.
0: But the thing is, like, I think this, in comparison to Molly's game, this story is relatively banal. I mean... It's dealing with heavier subject matter, but it's That's kind true. of boring, I mean, honestly. And and we should say it is a courtroom dra- drama through and through. It's from the, the beginning to the end, even though he tries at the beginning to try to make this a, a sort of frenetic, fast-paced movie where he's introducing us to all these characters and then eventually they, that sort of just lands on its face as they all have to sit in the courtroom for this whole, t- the other two hours of this movie. So... It, that's another example of sort of where him as a director or as a conductor of the editing it, it sort of
2: falls flat. Okay. And the, the, there's some tonal and pacing issues with this movie for sure. Like with the, the very opening scene and the character introductions to bam, stopping, we're in the courtroom. But I, I liked that Sorkin sort of took a step back and look, the this movie is in in no way absent of his signatures, but he does tone them down a little bit for the sake of this movie, and I think that was a mature decision. I mean, I like I like all the Sorkinisms, you know, the the metaphors, the fast paced dialogue, the walk and talks, whatever, the cutaway scenes. I think those are all great, but for him to make this movie function as the courtroom drama that it is. He needed to slow that down, and I think he did that successfully. I had no problem with the courtroom scenes kind of slowing the pace down in this movie. I, now, think,
0: I think that once the way he slowed it down, he took out all the stakes, and this was a very, for the most part, stakeless movie.
2: Well, <clears throat> I think that had to do more with the tone of the movie. In particular, the the comically evil judge. I mean, it's like... <laughs> Yeah, Am I watching or, my cousin Vinny or the Trial of the Chicago Seven? And I don't care if that's an authentic representation of the judge. Sorkin is known to take his his uh, his liberties with the truth in his movies. Why not do something there to make that a little bit more serious? Yeah, I
0: think that's a good believable. point. I think the judge, the Sasha Baron Cohen character, the sort of like when he played for laughs fell off yeah. and, the comic then, relief and movie, then of course work. the end was just, I almost laughed out loud. I mean, it literally ended with the trial and the judge going order order and everybody else clapping with the yeah, music. Was I was like, is I this mean.
2: real? Tonally. There's a lot of issues in this movie. I, and, and that's, that's, that's fine. I think that's an, another step that Sorkin needs to make. Um, but that ultimately didn't make this a bad movie. And I I do think there's issues with the stakes that stem from that. Um, ultimately, I think this was a bit of a vehicle for good performances and to relay Sorin's, Sorkin's opinions on the timeless nature of this story. Uh, and that's all okay, too.
0: Yeah, and there's coincidences that I, I wish like Sorkin... I thought Sorkin was better than, um, like when JGL's character ran into Sasha Baron Cohen's character and the other guy in the park randomly, and they had that conversation. Um, it was just, there was just parts of this movie that just felt really contrived for a movie that's based on a true story. Um, in the whole thing I liked yeah. it but the whole thing with Michael Keaton's character I, I although I think he was great in it and I love seeing myself some Michael Keaton show up but um, uh, I, yeah I thought it was a bit contrived
2: yeah the, the the line the the scene where they reveal the absence of the pronoun in, in, w- with oh, yeah, what like Eddie Redmayne said be is big... one of the worst written scenes in Sorkin history I yeah. think like, that was um, the big but reveal. anyway Chapin over to you sir
1: um yeah I I, I had fun watching this
2: <laughs> I did I did too I liked it um I got annoyed I I listed my issues honestly I list I think I listed them I, I enjoyed this movie
1: yeah I, I just think I don't know, I mean, going back to our earlier discussion, I just think it's kind of a minor movie, you know, and 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 Sorkin chose a direction here to tell this story in a way that I think is probably behooves his style, but isn't maybe the best way to tell a story like this. Um, I mean, I don't know, what is this movie about to you guys? Like, to me, I think there's some nice nice stuff, but like well, you, the, the right. definition of a, you know, like a courtroom is a great place for a screenwriter, right? Like it's just all dialogue. It's all dialogue and it's all, it's finding like kind of clever ways, you know, just in general, even like being a, a trial lawyer, like what you say is, is everything. It's, it's a performance in and of itself. And so I think this is an interesting trial and it's certainly one that I think reads cinematically, but it seemed like he was after, I felt very kind of you know when you're dropped into a movie and you are you feel very enveloped in the in the in the world of the film, you're you're grateful that the filmmaker isn't sort of dumbing down everything for you, but you know, you're you may be like a couple steps behind. I felt like ten steps behind. I wanted to know the significance of the um, the protests, I wanted to know more about what was going on mm-hmm. with these people. Um, you know, I, I understood kind of vaguely they were sort of protesting the Vietnam War. Okay, great. Um, but, you know, you ha- you, you're you sort of launched into this trial, which, you know, normally I would really appreciate. But in this particular sense, I found it very discon- just sort of discombobulating. It was hard to understand. And so ultimately... You know, if you're going to depict this event, again, and like, you know, we always say we're not going to be prescriptive and we turn out to do that. But I did find the, the, the courtroom setting to be a little um, hindering from a writing perspective because I didn't mm-hmm. feel like I really understood the importance of these characters and their, what they were doing and, and the event itself.
2: That's a great point. I, I sort of missed out on the history lesson that could have been here a little bit. Now you ask what's what this movie is about to us. There's two lines of dialogue um, in this movie. One uh, in the early in the ur- introduction scenes, the introduction of Bobby Seal. And we should get to that aspect of the movie too. Um, he he points out uh, as he's leaving for Chicago that that all these peaceful men—Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Bobby Kennedy—they were all, they were all killed. So he's going to try something else. And uh, then there's another line later that Eddie Redmayne. Says to Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, basically saying that you know, because of because of people like Abby Hoffman, you know, years from then, years from now, people are going to think that of liberals and pro- progressives as as uneducated people that are that are uh, or they're not going to necessarily think of them as educated people advocating for change, but just stoned hippies that are that are radical and. And I and I found both of those two lines to be obviously very timeless, but also really interesting about what this movie is about. Like, I think it's exploring, you know, what is the correct way to invoke changes. And that gets bogged down by the sometimes silliness, sometimes overly dramatic, sometimes uh, chaotic nature of these courtroom scenes that I don't think work in large part because... There's the lack of development or understanding that you're talking about. We don't really know a lot about these characters that are on trial, and all we know about the judge and the prosecutors is that they're evil, really. I mean, and I I was thinking about this movie in comparison to A Few Good Men, which is one of Sorkin's first scripts. He wrote it as a play, and then, of course, it was adapted and directed by Rob Reiner. Um, very famous movie, one of the most rewatchable movies ever, a great movie, great courtroom drama, maybe arguably one of the best courtroom dramas. And I was thinking about, okay, what about those courtroom scenes is working better than these? You know, there's some more intense, entertaining cross-examinations, I suppose, but I, I honed in on Kevin Bacon's character, Mm. which is not evil. He's the prosecutor, but he's not evil. He's sort of interesting. There's a friendship between him and and Tom Cruise's Cat, Lieutenant Caffey. And I think the absence of any hum, like real humanity. The, I think he tried to do with, that with J.G. They tried. Yeah. They did, yeah. and I don't think it was successful. Um, you know, I, I, I thought about that. But I think the absence of that made these courtroom scenes just feel off and not really that captivating well, and you so we missed out on the stuff you're got talking the about
1: the stuff in a few good men that's around it too you know you 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 learn who mcafee is you learn who all those people are um with all their work on the trial you know i was thinking about sorkin in, in relation to this movie and the the one thing i sort of left with was like what's really important in sorkin's work is the is is the work work his characters are doing they're always at work mm-hmm. they are always working hard they're passionate people but you, you watch them do the work right and that's important and there's an importance in that work and like doing it and working hard but like persevering through it right but you don't see yeah. that yeah. In, in, this, you don't, in this movie yeah. there's no work being done you're, you're, sort of, you're sort of watching the trial unfold and I thought that stuff actually was really good I love what's his name <laughs> Uh, no uh you don't know no, oh, Mark no, Rylance. George, we're going we're going to war, George. Um but Yeah, um, Mark Rylance. Yeah. And and but you don't see that process and I think there's just too many characters in this movie. Like yeah, I didn't feel yeah. like, like I, I, I know Abby uh, Hoffman is, is a really is an important person in history and some of those other people. But like, I, I didn't feel like I knew them. And then Eddie Redmayne is in like every scene, kind of like looking out, looking off into the, you know, in the background of every That's scene. An and, interesting performance. And I didn't know I didn't like what what is his significance? Who is this guy? Um and you know I had to wikipedia them later, and maybe that's my own ignorance but like how many other people i mean uh, came to it with the same lack of information as i did um i en- like i said, I enjoy this film I just think that it's not one of Sorkin's a pieces and I think that's probably why he directed it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I, but, I just okay. want to kind of piggyback on your point a little bit, Chapin, because of it being sort of all over the place. And I, I found myself wondering, what what is Sorkin trying to critique with this? Like, what is right. he, trying he trying to say? What's yeah, exactly. is is he trying to say? Is it a critique against the Vietnam War? Is it a critique against the justice system? Is it a critique against the man? Is it a racial critique? I mean, he throws all these things in there just a little bit without having sort of the big picture like critique to to tie it all together and it it feels so disjointed because of that and i think part of it is because it does have so many characters and he tries to give them all equal time i guess um but yeah there was a it was a lot of like okay what like why why is eddie redmond's um character so important I don't understand it. I don't really see it yet like why is why have this character that's sort of the family man that comes in that like I just couldn't weave all the threads
2: together to make it work for me yeah I mean this this movie you know look we ask movies to to make sure they're giving their audience credit right and this movie picks up with the expectation that we have some understanding of of these characters in history. And, Chapin, you pointed out, maybe it's our own ignorance, but we are sort of a, a generation beyond, at least one generation beyond these these people and who these people were important for. You know, I mean, not to bring it back to real life totally, but we're fighting our own similar battles now uh, in this country that have to do with a lot of the same things. And, and so for us to, you know... It's not like we t- walk around, you know, holding up Abby Hoffman as like you know our
1: right. Um, He's not well known, like to the, us, yeah.
2: Right, like the guy that we're you know remembering and kind of following in the footsteps of. It's, it's, it's. They're not quite on that level, <clears throat> um, so it's a little tricky. And and I I missed knowing a little bit more about them. I, I really liked the scenes that flashed back to the convention where the riots took place. I I thought those scenes were really interesting. and I thought those were some of the most well-directed scenes. the, Mm -hmm. The first riot scene on the hill when the music slowly builds and builds and builds. Although even in there, it's a little nitpicky, but like he, he crescendos to this point where somebody yells, take the hill and the music amps up, but then he takes it away for a minute and has Sacha Baron Cohen explaining what tear gas does. And, but anyway, that was a great scene. I love the the aesthetic of that scene, the music, all that was great. And that was some of some of my more interesting aspects of the movie. And they juxtaposed nicely with the courtroom scenes. That that stuff worked great. Um so I wish maybe there was more of that, you know, throughout the movie. We we learn, you know, I'm I'm never the one to ask for you know, more more of the characters' lives in a movie. I never want that. I want to, I want you to hone in on, on something specific, but this is like, okay, he did that, honed in on the one specific event so he could learn about it, but he honed in the one, on the one specific event for eight different people. So it's like trying to figure out this. It's like the same problem we have with the the birth to death dot biopics, except that it's a a bunch of different people at one moment.
1: Right. Which is, I think surprising because Sorkin is both, I think aware of, of that. And he also wrote, one of the more recent definitive biopics that doesn't do that in Steve jobs
2: with Steve jobs, which I watched again recently. And I I think that is my favorite Sorkin script. It's really, it's
1: really smart. Um, and yeah, it's surprising. And, and yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think this is a ultimately a a fun movie. I don't know that it should have
2: been. I, I, I was thinking after I watched it, I think it's impossible for Sorkin movies to not be fun. I which, agree. I don't know if that's good or bad. F- fun and heartwarming.
1: I was thinking about like, <laughs> is this is this movie? I mean, it, it's it, it's timing is sort of fortuitous with how it, with how it aligns with the protests that have been going on in this country. And you you I think what what it, it, it is after in some respects is showing the importance of protest and how it works, you know, with the legal system, et cetera. And so a lot of those issues feel prescient to me, which is great. But I'd also say that, I, you know, I don't, I don't think Sorkin knew this was going to happen obviously, but um, certainly there's been more protests since uh, Trump has got elected. So there's some sort some precedent for it, but I will say I did, I did think a lot about um, never rarely, sometimes, always after this, because of that film also having some prescient, uh, prescient political issues with, you know, what we're seeing with um, the woman who's interviewing to be <laughs> the Supreme Court Justice. Uh, what's her name? Amy something something. Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, I think that movie, despite me not really enjoying it and the fact that I'll probably never watch it again. But was more powerful from a political standpoint, more sort of um, pointed, and 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 in my mind gave me more images. It was more imagistic for me in 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 providing some kind of context to all these issues we're talking about, and and I think the sort of the pure enjoyment of Sorkin's movies, the, the sort of the sort of nice but rather uneventful photography of this film the the funniness that you know the, the the quippy dialogue it all sort of kept me from i mean this movie is not going to make me go join any protests you know
0: yeah i think i think that would never rarely always sometimes or so some, whatever it's called it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's more cinematic it's it, it gets to the key of of how to influence you sort of on that cinematic level whereas this is more operatic it's more of a play it's more yeah, of you know, it. you know you know it's more storytelling than cinema
2: i also think and this is something that i that bothers me a little bit um at least with this movie and and i feel like it it would ha- it has a little bit of the the Cameron Crowe effect, where I'll start to notice it more in his other movies, going back to them. But there's definitely an arrogance about Sorkin's work that's a little annoying. Like he, even if his movie isn't preachy about his agenda, it comes across very much like he's saying, "I'm right about this." Motorcycle mm. comes across very much like he's saying, "I'm right about this," and I mean, I, I in theory, appear to agree with the politics and opinions that Sorkin has in his scripts, but it's it's just, I don't like how arrogant it seems. Do you guys feel that? Yeah, I, like I, mean, it, I don't with his work.
1: I mean, it's his, he
2: is Even very, like the West
1: Wing, you don't feel that? He's very progressive. I, mean, I think his characters can be annoying that way, but I don't feel like... Um, but he is his character. Well, do you, okay, do you feel like when you look at Mark Zuckerberg, the 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 Aaron Sorkin Mark Zuckerberg, or the Aaron Sorkin, um, uh, Apple, Steve, Steve Jobs. Jobs, the name of the movie, Jesus Christ, yeah. um, <laughs> it's, uh, Apple. Do you, <laughs> it's like when Trump said Tim Apple called the CEO of the, Tim Cook Tim, Tim Apple. Cook. Um, yeah. Okay, that's where I am mentally. So, uh, no. Um, do you guys feel like those people are are Sorkin as well?
0: No, I th- I think those are a little different because he has a uh, a real life character that we have that he, here. No, but that has. I don't know. I think the recency to those characters and having them in the press and having film of them and all this work, I
2: think that changes that a little bit.
1: Yeah, see I, I don't know. I mean I think if you I don't know, I don't know if I agree with that, but
2: okay. I think those I think those movies are more actors speaking Sorkin than this movie is. I think this is the least Sorkin spoken movie that exists. It it's there, it's all there. There's 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 this you know, the whole the whole scene that I that I always think of is the the one early in the movie where they're arguing and arguing and arguing about everybody's names and and it's kinda funny, right? But it's it's very Sorkin esque. But there's not as much of that in this movie as there is in something like Steve Jobs or The Social Network or even a few good men. Um what did you guys think of the Bobby Seal storyline in this movie? It felt out of place. Yeah, I that's one way to put it. I I thought it was an it amazing like part of movie. the story. I thought it was such an amazing aspect of this movie until it wasn't anymore. It was just gone.
0: <laughs> There's No, there was something that I just I get it
2: like I mean, but, it's, this goes it's back true, to my obviously. point: is he's trying to
0: to say too much, and of course, this really happened with that many people on trial. But I feel like he was in. He, there was a to go back to uh, courtroom uh, drama. There was sort of a sidebar movie going on with yeah, with a, that true. Bobby Seal <clears throat> character. There was something separate, and it's not that it wasn't important because, of course, it was. But it just seemed like uh, okay. Like,
2: See, I something. actually thought it was the best part of the movie until it wasn't part of the movie anymore. I loved the stuff with, you know, Rylance just continuously insisting that he can't represent him. He's not his lawyer. Yeah, and on day continuously, 60 whatever. It's like alright, well what do we do? And this doing? guy continuously standing up and trying to represent himself and then finally getting, you know, gagged in the courtroom which is is something that really happened. And I think all that stuff was amazing and then it was declared a mistrial, and he left and that was the end of him. We never saw this character again in the movie. And that part was over. It felt like it just disappeared.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe, I mean, if that's how it really happened, it would be hard to not include it. I mean, you, you can, you can understand why. You,
2: right. They can't film those court scenes without him in. Him. Yeah.
1: Um, I thought, I thought it was a nice, a nice moment,
2: but this
0: is, it did feel like, like a lot of it was just like, don't forget about my movie.
2: That- but see, this is where I think Sorkin isn't the director we want yet, because he, I think where where maybe we're giving Sorkin almost too much credit is is in the idea that the directors are just taking the script as is and, and shooting the script, and that's not what happens. A director massages it, right? And they like they they mesh these different points together and these different pieces together and they find a way to make this Bobby Seale car- uh, storyline work within the fabric of the trial of the other Chicago 7 that this story is really about. And, and that was also the issue with Molly's Game. Like, Molly's Game is... And I don't know how else I can articulate it. It's like a really interesting story. Molly is an interesting character. Her the history of her, how she got to where she was, was all really interesting. And and Chapin, you said you like watching movies about rich people. Like that's a cool part of that movie too. But a a, a more competent director takes that script, which is just all like not like seventy five percent voiceover and then twenty five percent dialogue and and action showing us the same thing that we've just been told a, a director takes that and pairs down that voiceover finds ways to show it and not tell us. And that's what he didn't do in Molly's game. It's what he did a little better here, but still isn't quite. I don't know to the if that's necessarily that like. true. Like, uh, first of all, Molly's game's all about her. So there's no, there's n-
0: no confusion that that story I, is about Molly. And do you think I, if Scorsese was directing it, he'd pare down the
2: voiceover if anything, you would yes. add a couple more. Yeah, the voiceover... I can't believe you guys aren't... The, the voiceover in Molly's Game is some of the worst voiceover in movies.
3: Harlan Eustis was excited about the surprise 40th birthday party he was throwing for his wife in 24 hours.
2: Went to the whole courtyard of the Buffalo Club about hundred people.
1: Kumamoto oysters, snow crabs, lobster. He
3: wasn't taking off menu items to show off. He was genuinely excited about the party he was giving his wife.
1: She doesn't know anything about it. She thinks we're having
2: dinner with his brother and his wife.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I liked Harlan, but nobody else liked him except Player X. He played tight, uh, didn't give a lot of action, and always got his money in good, which means he was running the odds. 5,000 to call. No. In other words, he was playing poker. And the others were gambling, and he won. By midnight, Harlan had tripled his original fifty thousand dollar buy-in, but everything came off the rails with one hand. And that's how it happens. That's how you go full tilt. I
2: it had is, no problem with it. I, I think I, it's honestly, not that I have I? a problem with it. It's that you you're, you see something on screen. You literally see her get a text message, and then her voiceover says, "And I got a text message." I don't think, that's it, horrible. I don't think it's that bad. But it actually is. But, There's an exact scene. She's like, "I text I'm, all of Lee, them." And I'm then trying it to defend you. I got here. it I'm trying all to back.
1: Defend you here, okay? Jeez, before you dig Ugh. yourself too far in a hole, okay? Um, look, I, I think that this is an important process that we don't talk a lot about. And I think, interestingly enough, whenever I think about the process, I think about Fincher working with Sorkin and what you get to see of that behind the scenes um, in The Social Network, Blu-ray. We had three weeks of rehearsal, which was a great luxury. Uh, And that rehearsal was sitting around a table, reading through the scenes, talking about the scenes. I'm CEO,
2: bitch. I don't know how that connects. Uh, To me, it feels oddly like a dangling participle here. Okay, if we only hear that
1: once, which we do earlier, is that enough for the payoff at the end? I think so. Okay.
0: When it only came up once, I was making a, a, a bigger Do about it, um, so you think we can land it only doing it once? I I think so,
1: okay, great. Um, but you know, like a direct, a lot of directors, and and this isn't you know, some directors for hire, I'm sure, take a script and direct it as is. But a, a big, big part of what a director does is work on the screenplay, and I think they don't necessarily write it, a lot of them do, a lot of them put in enough work that they get a writing credit or you know they're control freaks and thus you know are, are you know give
2: themselves a, get themselves
1: a writing credit but um i think a lot of directors sit there and work the screenplay and they work it and they work it and they work it and i think it's really interesting to hear someone like Steven Spielberg talk about this because he just has unlimited resources and everybody wants to work with him and he'll say you know the the draft of the post was was in a the draft of warhorse was in a good was in good shape and so we just went and made it you know cuz that's the kind of person Spielberg is. He can just go and make a movie whenever he wants to, but there are people that, that are like that. They, he can go and he can work a script and if it's not working, they send it to a different writer or they do this. And I think it's a a really interesting process. And I think it's probably something that is very hard to imagine a writer director doing, right? Like, can you imagine Quentin Tarantino sitting down and being like, is this going to work? Is this not going to work? And, and I think it's, it's a a lot of credit goes to someone like that or to PTA. I mean, I assume these people have somebody who sort of serves as an editor, right? Like somebody who they run their drafts by, um, before they go, you know, before they shoot it because, you know, and, and maybe that's actually their film editor, you know, maybe that's, maybe the edit is done in post, but you know, I, I just find that process of really honing down and making that script, um, as good as it can be, a, 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 an unsung process in the film we don't it's something we don't talk about something you don't hear about a lot because there's a lot of contractual and egos at stake etc
2: yeah and this is certainly not a, a an incident that's isolated to sorkin and him directing his own movie but it is an example and i think molly's game is a very good example in trial of chicago 7 might be a good one too of how another set of eyes and another voice can make a huge huge difference now you know you don't bring in another writer to fix Sorkin's script. Sorkin's the guy you bring in to fix somebody else's script. So the whether it's the ego you're talking about or whatever, like it's just it, it, Sorkin's at a point in his career where he seems like he can kind of, you know, do what he wants with his scripts, either, ha, you know, work to get somebody else to direct it or direct it himself. Which but, is too bad. I mean, that's, you know what I mean? Because... You know, e- sure, it makes things better if you if you can have other sets of eyes. I mean, it's just I think there's it's we, we talked about doing our top five screenwriters, and we're avoiding the Quentin Tarantino's and the PTAs and and the the people who are who are classified as writer directors, and there turned out to be a lot of those, which is almost surprising considering how kind of an amazing amazing of a skill that actually is to be well, able to to do that successfully on such a consistent basis. I I think.
0: The ones who can do it, like Tarantino and PTA, they write in the language of cinema. Whereas I don't think Aaron Sorkin necessarily writes in the language of cinema. It's not his first language. Whereas it's definitely Quentin Tarantino's first what, language. What is, definitely... what
1: is his first language? Dialogue? Like what? I
0: I would say uh, dialogue or plays uh, or theater or just. I would agree with that, that. sort of. I, I think he, structure. He, he doesn't. He doesn't have the the cinematic mind that like Tarantino does. So you can Tarantino can write his three hundred page Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and we may think it's too long at certain points, but there's none of it that feels like if somebody else had directed it or he wasn't doing what was right for um, the medium he was in.
1: Sure. I mean, I think if you you look at you just brought up Tarantino's. Script. I imagine a lot of that is cut, but the actual shooting script of, um, the social network was like 190 pages long because it was so dialogue heavy. And of course dialogue, I heard an interview with, with Sorkin where he was justifying the length of his strip script and correctly because, um, you know, dialogue takes up a lot more space on the page than direction, but it's also a lot faster. So, um, I think his yep. I think his scripts are very dialogue heavy, and I think that's very astute for you to say that, Jeremy. I mean, and you know, a movie like Steve Jobs. I I remember hearing the the plot of Steve Jobs and being like, oh fuck, like that sounds really lame. Like, I want them to do kind of your birth to death biopic for someone like Steve Jobs, especially at that point because I had, I think I read the book, um, the movie was based on, or one of them, and he's a fascinating character, um, but like Sorkin's. Ability to both make that, you know, the structural g- genius of that sh- of that um, script, you know, setting it in three different acts um, before three different product launches. Super smart. Um, and also just, but also allowed him to write the way he wanted to, which was like, that movie is all dialogue. Like, it is just start to finish. Talk, 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 talk. And you, talk, 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 and talk. you
2: learn about his... You learn. You don't learn. Like you learn a little bit. Birth to death. Like obviously he's you do. Yeah, alive at the end of this movie. But you learn about how he was adopted. You learn about his relationship with his ex-wife and his his uh, the Lisa who's either his daughter or is not. Like you learn all that stuff through the focus on that one thing. And it's just sm- such smart writing. The other thing that I think is interesting is like so I'm, I've been reading Molly's Game. So I, I, I rewatched Molly's Game this past week. Like I said, like I said, I wanted to, and I and I started reading the book, and. It's just the book is just it's the same as the movie. It's exactly the same. It's it's everything that we hear and see in the movie is in the book in the same order, and that's actually pretty rare. You think about like the Social Network or Moneyball, which are both, uh, or even a movie or a book like Fight Club. Like these books that are just like how, how is this going to be structured into a movie in an entertaining way, and these directors do it, and you know with Moneyball and social networks Sorkin obviously has a huge part in both of those movies writing the sc- the screenplays but Fincher and Bennett Miller make it a structured cinematic experience that the book is not necessarily whereas Molly Molly's game it's just the same exact thing so that just tells me that he just wrote the book in screenplay form and then filmed the screenplay and and that is Which is just, technically
0: what you're supposed to do, but yeah, you're right. right but that-
2: there's a level that's just not there. And again, I'm going to reiterate: I like Molly's Game. I think it's a fun movie. I will probably watch Molly's Game more times than I will watch Trial of the Chicago Seven. And I like Chica- Trial of Chicago Seven also, but I just think that they're to say smaller movies, B-level movies, and as you put it, I think they're just they're just unpolished direct Directorial efforts by Sorkin,
1: which which I think is fine. I mean, I, as long as he's not directing the Steve Jobs is in the social networks, then that's fine. He seems right. to know but better. I, it I does make like me wonder. He's someone smart who, enough and sort of um, egoless, or you know, sort of uh, self-aware enough to know he probably shouldn't direct. He's not going to be a great director. So fine, let him. Yeah, direct, you know, I wish, but, I hope
0: yeah, that. Yeah, but how? Like, what if? So what this if comes he back to Jeremy's question. The social
2: network, or it, what if he? We or what if somebody know. else directed Molly's Game? Like that's that's my point. And like, I don't know. I think that movie that,
1: is as good as it could have been. I think that script. Wrong. No way. I, I'm sort of agreeing with you. I think the script is just. It's just going to be just so good. It's just. It's fine. It's a fine but script. That's and it's where a the fine director movie. comes
2: in and 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 makes those necessary changes. That's what we've been talking about, but. It all comes back to Jeremy's question, of whether or not he should be directing his own movies. And the reason I am okay with it is because I saw, I saw a growth between Molly's Game and Trial of Chicago Seven. It's far from perfection, but if if he is on an if he is learning from movie to movie, then fine, direct the next one. Let's see where we are. If he takes a step back, then you know we we can have this conversation again. But Here's- I think here's I a thing worthwhile seeing we haven't really talked about when they can get us into
0: the performances but how does sorkin do with his actors and i think that's another thing that he needs to work on a little bit
2: um his how he well, directs I'd be curious actors to hear, I, I mean so talking about two movies I'm hard-pressed to find a bad performance in either of them. Now, I think it's an unpopular opinion, but I wasn't crazy about Sasha Baron Cohen in Chicago 7. I didn't, uh, like, I, I didn't seven. like him in it. I don't think he was bad, but I wasn't crazy about him. But everybody else who I thought was excellent. And I didn't think I Eddie say Redman the same was about, very good either. I liked him. I thought it was an interesting performance, but I liked him. I, I don't have a lot of experience with him. I haven't I mean, seen a lot of the stuff. he And there's also like little for.
0: little moments where I I could just tell it's Sorkin getting all giddy to do it, and it's turn it turns it into a bad moment or a bad performance at the time. Uh, One I could think of specifically is, I don't know the actor's name, the one who plays JGL's boss that sits next to him the whole time. Right, the guy
1: who's in the department. J.C.
0: McKenzie. Yeah, Yeah, who basically— That was a real fleshed
2: out character.
0: (laughs) At the end, but this is just like a perfect example. At the end, they're doing that thing where they're trying to read all the names of the victims uh, who died, and then he's just like, what are you doing? And then yeah, he was, JGL's was like, I'm honoring the troops, and he just gets up and gets all like that moment I could tell Sorkin was behind the camera going, Oh, he's gets great but it's really yeah. just
2: No, it, that's a bingo. Yeah.
0: It really yeah. ruins that moment. I mean, that moment I think is ruined all the way through. Um so, and then I didn't I didn't mind that scene that
2: much. And I, then there's lines certainly... that
0: Sasha Barra Cohen uh, Baron Cohen uh, delivers, especially his sort of, sort of more jokey lines in the courtroom that, uh, about them having the same last name and no one's going to confuse us. And I could just tell Sargon's like, oh. Yeah. Uh, but well, I he, don't think he pulls off.
1: He loves those moments where you get to be like, oh, God, this, you know, you you, you just appreciate how good a person that character is, you know? And like, that's what Molly's game is like all about is how sort of moral this woman is, despite her being in this, you know, immoral profession. And you just, you know, the movie just marvels at how she didn't rat out the other people. And, and I think, and, and I heard an interview with Sorkin that was said that that's what attracted him uh, most to Molly. And, and so I, I, and, and you like that's like the West Wing is just t- completely built on that. And that's where a director like Danny Boyle or a director like Fincher especially, that sort of acerbic edge that Fincher has, just like chops all yeah. that off. We'll nope, we're not doing down. that. Yeah. We are not yeah. doing that. Because, you know, like... I'm sure Fincher hates so, that stuff.
2: That's so out of line uh, with his See, face. this is how so this Fincher is how, directs Molly's game tape and how that's a that is he an ne- amazing. He never would. Movie. I don't
1: I wa- I don't want to think I, about But uh, This Fincher. is
2: obviously all
0: speculative, but I wanna go back to that point though, because it's not just like the higher moral ground that that sorkin loves sorkin loves those moments where one character can up another character um with dialogue alone with with a word alone and we've pointed out those moments that don't work that that sorkin directs but you think of like something like the social network um there's moments in that where where those sort of dialogue happen you know like when um justin timberlake's uh talking about you know uh I've never heard of you. I forget the exact uh, line of dialogue. Oh, yeah. You know how much I've read um, about
2: you? Nothing.
0: Yeah. yeah, you know how much I've read it? Like, that. that's a, so, such a Sorkin moment that works in that. Um, but it's not done in sort of a gleeful way. It's it, it's done in, in a, a sort of razor-sharp way, which I think is, again, an example of what a... a, a like yeah, a this movie lacks a
2: sharpness. That's a good word, mm-hmm. I think. Um, it doesn't have, like... I don't know. There's a combination of things that need to go right for you to really like what the things that Sorkin does, right? Like, it's it's not enough to just be like snappy, right? Like it it's, it can't just be like Tracy Hepburn, you know. It's we're looking for some more complexity to it, and Sorkin he does that. He he just it's not quite as prevalent here. Um, I, I'm curious what you guys think about. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I liked him in this like, he's, actually. He's always been an actor that we've liked. I, I'm not sure I'm crazy about where his career has gone you, and like the choices he's made. And... You guys went crazy for him in like the early aughts or the early tens, and I,
1: the, I, but I, I like him. I just don't think he like. Didn't you? You guys went to go see some movie that I would have never have gone to see that he was in in the height of that period. I forget what it was, and you all hated it. Um, but I, uh, where he's like kind of oh, a punk or, something? or yeah.
0: something. Oh, Hesher. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. God, that was such a bad movie. It was I such think a that bad was the movie. Look, of I,
2: the, I have this, I have this like n- this nostalgic lo- love for Joseph Gordon Levitt because of Angels in the Outfield. So it all stems from sure, there. We all have our okay. For... Which, by the way, which, by the way, have you guys ever looked at the cast of that movie? I know. Movie? That's crazy. There's like six Oscar winners in it. <laughs> really? Adrian Brody is in that. Um, Matthew McConaughey is in that. Obviously, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is in it. Danny Glover is in it. Um, Christopher Lloyd, Christopher Lloyd is in it. Did I say Adrian Brody? Yeah. Um, uh, Brenda. Brenda. Uh, okay. Who cares? <laughs> Brenda Frickman. I just don't think
0: JG, uh, JGL has the sort of depth of emotion that.
1: I just he's never given needed. roles. That requires. That's what that.
0: I mean. Like I,
2: don't, his, his, I don't like, like his, like yeah, he's he's good his good career as an option, but he's inception. playing this role in obsession. He's like the Exactly. He's sort of a yeah, professional. Robotic. Yeah. It's so true. This was. <laughs> yeah. Um,. Top Mark five. Rylance I loved in this movie. He just like oozes sympathy. I love him. He's, yeah, he's, he's, he's so good. I
1: loved him in this. He, I love him in everything, yeah. but I liked seeing him kind of like
2: unhinged a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know? And he also looks like he's like never showered and like just like, it was sort of an amazing performance. All right. Should we move on? Let's move on to our top
0: five. And so we're going to do our top five screenwriters. Uh, We'll see how it goes with this. I have a feeling Chabin's going to argue a couple of mine, but that's okay. We'll we'll just get through it. I mean,
1: you're supposed to play by the rules, but it's all right. Rule breaker. You're a rule breaker.
0: Like these screenwriters, I'm a rule breaker. Uh, All right, so... The idea is they can't be known as writer-directors. They have to be more known as writers. Right. doesn't
1: mean they can't
0: have directed a movie here or there. Like, Sorkin would fit this list.
1: Sure, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, exactly. Yep.
0: Um, And I I personally decided to keep Sorkin off the list. Uh, I found enough that, uh, you know, we talked about him enough, so he's not on mine, but uh, we allowed him to be if... uh, you know, you guys decided to. And with that being said, Chapin, why don't you um, why don't you kick us off?
1: Okay. Um, my number five is Robert Town.
2: Man, you know, okay. Tell us why. What do you Chinatown? mean? Chinatown? It was, yeah, it, actually... Because <laughs> he's written a lot of shit, too. He has written a yeah. lot of shit. Like, talk a about of a get-out-of-jail-free card. And Chinatown's a worthwhile get-out-of-jail-free t- card, but... <laughs> Well, don't forget he's Mission actually, Impossible he's,
1: One and Two.
2: Um, he's on my list too, but I did have to
0: think about that because recently we talked about how some of the bad movies he wrote. You
1: you, you needed just like three, two like between two and three great movies to get on this list, and uh,
2: yeah. It's I, so I thought I thought my list would ha- would be made up of of writers that just have like endless good credit. It's but hard that's to a, find. There's not a lot actually. Yeah. It yeah. Proves it's hard to the, be a. The last detail lot of is really movies. good.
1: Chinatown's really good. Um, I Mission remember Impossible
2: sh- the first one.
1: Mission Impossible one is good. Although that that was <laughs> okay. a lot of. Okay. There's
2: like six people on my list that wrote written, <laughs> wrote that movie. So
1: yeah. Um. I mean, I could I could swat out another
2: one no, if you guys no, want.
0: no. It's on my list. Nope. So go okay. ahead. Uh, Lee, what's your number five?
2: Um, All right, my number five is Jonathan Nolan. Um, Uh, Obviously, works with Christopher Nolan. Um, He wrote the original short story for Memento, and then helped adapt that into the screenplay. Um, And then the Prestige being the biggest. Yeah. Put it together. In different pieces, yeah. Um, The Prestige, obviously, I think is the the um, uh, most important screenplay that he's written. Um, But then, of course, the Dark Knight. And Dark Knight Rises also just ignore that. So he's a co. He's a
1: co-writer. Does that does that have any impact on your?
2: So I I thought about co-writers and it sort of depended on what my understanding of their role was as a co-writer because there was a bunch of co-writers on like some Billy Wilder scripts but I didn't count them because I feel like Billy Wilder is the one known but Jonathan Nolan is is well known to to work with his brother on on a lot of these screenplays so uh, I gave him credit as one of one of the writers. I mean, I, I have to be honest, like I sort of looked at it, it as like, okay, if I see this uh, person attached to write something, uh, am I excited about it? Am I excited about that movie or that show? And with Jonathan Nolan, I think he he has that. I was excited about Westworld. I liked the first season. I did, then I stopped watching it, but um, so yeah. All right. Uh, my number five is,
0: I guess a guy I wouldn't have known before this list, but I'm like, whoa! this is a, Impressive list of movies. And it's Ernst Lehman, who did The Sweet Smell of Success, which we recently um, reviewed here. North by Northwest, West Side Story, Sound of Music, Sabrina. Um, Not all movies I love, but uh, it's a pretty impressive
2: resume for my number five. Yeah, with guys like that, you look at it and just, you know, there's a lot of... It's a totality thing. Yeah, and you see it a lot more... Uh, with older movies but it was just like this is clearly the person that everybody wanted writing the screenplays it, it, you know he's got hired a lot and then directors wanted to direct his work so like i think that's just a, a a good way to kind of judge the talent their talents as a writer and like how many scripts they had back then <laughs> um
1: my number four i'm gonna let i'm gonna switch out because I, I don't want to take it from jeremy and i know it'll be on jeremy's list um but so I'll switch it out for um a little known writer named Scott Frank. Do you guys know who that is? I don't. He wrote a little film was... called Minority Report.
2: Oh, yeah. I looked up Minority Report and I was curious what else he wrote.
1: Yeah, and so he's written a bunch of stuff. He wrote the film I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but a film called Little Man Tate, which Jody Foster directed, also starred in. Um, which is a movie that my mom took me to when I was in theater and disturbed oh, yeah. the <laughs> shit out of me. I mean, I just, I like, I, I'll never forget that viewing experience. He also wrote Out of Sight. He wrote Get Shorty. Uh, he wrote The Wolverine, yeah, really which is good. okay, but more importantly, he wrote Logan, um, which I think
2: is also really good and clever. That's and, a great
1: pick. Yeah, I like him. Uh, but yeah, mostly on this list for yeah, Minority
2: Report. Report. Yeah, there's some where you're just like, you directed this one movie. Like, Robert Towne. You directed yeah. this one movie, yeah. and you written, you're on the wrote. list. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, Lee,
2: what do you got? Um, my number four is kind of boring, guys. I apologize. But it's, uh, it's sort of the modern-day example of, like, the Ernst Lehman, where it's just, like, all these great movies, uh, and he at least took part in writing them. It's Steve Zalian. Um, I, I do get excited when I see his name attached to, to movies. Finler's um, <laughs> List. Also, yep. Mission Impossible, Gangs <clears throat> of New York, American Gangster, Girl with Crow the Dragon, Dragon Tattoo. Wait, sorry, the did Irish you just put Man. Gangs of New York as like a good example in there? No, I was just coughing over okay. that. I was just pointing out one of his credits. Yeah, he, he, um, that's
1: my number three. You can't,
2: you can't, you can't hit them all. That's your number three. Yeah. Uh,
1: what I yeah. love about these just guys a- um, is when they do direct. <laughs> he directed that awful movie, um, I believe, All the King's Men which had like the most every the biggest cast ever the biggest ever. most awesome cast of all time and then just was one of the worst movies ever made
2: <laughs> which you know he he's yeah i i think i mean there's got to be something to be said about like the versatility too like yeah. these these screenplays are also different Schindler's List Mission Impossible American Gangster the Irishman, the girl with the dragon tattoo, like they're he re- so different. He like, wrote
1: *Clear and Present Danger*, which is
2: one of my. Oh, that's right. Yeah, movies. I didn't write everything down. I just jotted a few things down. It's
1: also hard to tell because like that movie has three writers, one of which was John Millia. So it's like, you know, who actually did what? But
2: right, they again, you brought it up. They get brought in to rewrite a scene and need a credit. So right, that's what, like Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible literally had like six writers. Yeah. He was an honorable mention
0: for me. Um, all right, so my number four I went with uh, David Webb Peoples.
1: Yep. Yeah Unforgiven, maybe.
0: Unforgiven, which is one of my favorites. Blade Runner, plays. right? Blade yep. Runner, Twelve Monkeys. I guess you kind of stop there. Um, but yeah, you know, again, it's it's a totality thing. I mean you write one of the best screenplays I think ever written in Unforgiven, and then you add on to that Blade Runner and Twelve Monkeys, which is another great screenplay, you
1: make the list. So, can I ask you guys something, going back to Steve Zalian, sorry. He wrote Hannibal, okay? Now, that's a bad book, and was probably a bad directing job by Sir Ridley of Scott. But, like, in the sense that we look at a movie like Molly's Game and say, that could be an awesome movie, I feel like Hannibal, the sequel to such a great movie with such a great screenplay, could also have been... Really yeah, good, but they were, they both were your other source material ex- is bad, and your and your sort of your production is bad. Like, wh- wh-
2: you know, you're also. I mean, you're recasting the Jodie Foster role, um, the, the Clarice role, which is you know that's not a good start. No, and so I think there was a lot of a lot of issues that went into the problems with that movie. Okay, cool. You're up.
1: Oh, I am. I, well, my number three was Zalian.
2: Oh, that's right. Uh, my number three is Eric Roth. Um, <laughs> another kind of journeyman of sorts. I, I narrowed in a little bit more kind of on what I like about him. Um, he does history well. Um, you know, he's got uh, just a couple of his credits. Forrest Gump, of course. But the insider, Ali, Munich. Another one I'm going to cough over, <clears throat> Benjamin Button. Um Again, Star is that born. could have
1: been a great movie.
2: It Could have been. Yeah, but you have a, you have, you have
0: great source material and a great director. Well, like where did that go? Yeah, on? that's yeah, the
2: exactly. <laughs> Um Star is born, uh, Dune, which is was is gonna was pushed, and then he's also wrote Killers of the Flower Moon, which Scorsese is about to direct. Um, but the insider Ali Munich, like these are some great historical pieces the, like, and the good you know, Shepherd insider recent recent history the i good never Shepherd. saw the good it's, Shepherd. it's a great
1: i actually really like that movie robert de niro directed um i think it's really good i think the screenplay is great
2: um so yeah i mean this is you know again it's another it's another writer that you know i always see his name around but like once you start to put all the credits together you're like wow you know this this is clearly a good writer and a lot of these guys, they don't they they don't have the signature that you know we've been talking about with Sorkin or that we see with like a Tarantino. So they're not quite as memorable for that reason. But you have to give them a lot of credit for all the work they're doing.
1: He seems to get along with powerful directors who often also write their scripts, which is probably a good sign, right? Like he has a co-writing credit with Bradley Cooper. He's got a co-writing credit with. Uh... Um, uh,
2: I'm assuming <laughs> Scorsese, but uh, Michael yeah, Mann. Michael yeah. Mann on
1: two movies. That must have uh, been an interesting yeah. experience. Um, and of course, uh, Mr. Spiel- Spielberg. Spielberg. All right. Well, my number three has already
0: been mentioned is Robert Town. So moving on then
2: to number, number two. Twos. My number two is Eric Roth. Okay. My number two is Charlie. Hoffman. Alright, um, my
0: number two is... We'll just say my number two, and then we'll we'll talk about these other guys, because I'm sure they'll be brought up again. But my number two is Paul Schrader.
2: Hmm. That's interesting. He didn't make my list. I thought about him, of course, but like, again, I mean, it's... Th- he was one where I was like, okay, he's got two at least like two amazing credits. Raging Bull and Taxi Driver, right? right? And then a lot of that I either haven't seen or just aren't that good. I think
0: like, I think the problem was, like, those are so good. When you see the other ones, you start getting a little disappointed. But if you really sure. think about it, you know, even Last Tempt- Temptation of Christ is a really good movie. Um, yeah. Bringing Out the Dead has its, mm. you know, issues. Same with First Reform.
1: Uh, yeah, hey, I mean... Scorsese I, loves him, huh?
0: But, uh, yeah, I think because... Raging Bull and Taxi Driver on there. Got to put them on there. But, uh, yeah. And then Charlie Kaufman, that's going to be my number one. So we can certainly talk about him.
2: what's your number one? My number one is Sorkin. Mine too. Um, Which I felt weird putting Sorkin as my number one. But I was like, I mean, he has by far the most scripts that I like. Um, there's still probably
1: a fair amount of recency bias as well but you know that counts for something
2: yeah but i mean a few good men i love that's his kind of his first movie and then you add his tv shows into like i really liked the newsroom i think a lot of people have their problems with that i've never seen all of the west wing um but i just think we've talked enough about him but charlie kaufman um yeah adaptation and eternal sunshine were enough for me
0: yeah i mean we talked about him recently um on the pod uh and and the reason i thought chapin would be a little bit uh you know does it count or not is because he has started to become his own director more and more yeah but Um, but he's known for his writing so that's fair right um and, and and to me adaptation and eternal sunshine are two of the top they're easily top five not both on top I mean top ten, if not top five, screenplays ever written for me. So there's no other modern s- screenwriter that has that. So it has to be number one.
2: What um, of on your list? What's your favorite script on your list, guys?
1: It's a great question. It's a
2: great question. It would be between it would be between Chinatown,
0: Eternal Sunshine, and.
2: Unforgiven As pure screenplays mm. Yeah I mean it's tough Like I like I said I think Steve Jobs Might be my favorite Sorkin screenplay I think it's Obviously, so, screenplay Obviously Social Network it, like, Is right there Like you wouldn't put it Ahead of like Eternal Sunshine Well that's the thing And Kaufman was the Second on my list But like Eternal I think Eternal Sunshine And Adaptation well, Would both be ahead of that In terms of screenplays But like It's should... so hard Because obviously Social Network is yeah. My favorite movie That Sorkin wrote and obviously that script is fantastic. Moneyball gets better every time I see it.
1: Like a fine wine. We should yep. do Eternal Sunshine sometime. I, I mean, we it could be apropos of nothing, but I think that that's a movie worth revisiting. And I, I may differ from you guys on how much I like it.
2: Ooh. Ooh, there's a little teaser. Well, next week we've got to do The Shining, so. Oh, Yeah drag Halloween why would that, why would, I thought you'd be excited about
1: that I am excited I have the 4k blu-ray it's like the most gorgeous thing I've ever seen and I've seen I've, I've, many paintings
2: I've started watching Dr. Sleep in preparation for it Oh, too. oh. yeah. so far not so great but it's horrible I'm watching it and anyway. then we chose it's to watch so the long. 3 hour
1: version <laughs> on HBO Max just the extended version why let me out of this <laughs> alright guys that was good
0: All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. Um, If you agree or disagree with any one of our takes, any one of our million of brilliant takes, feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com. And if you want to be a sponsor, um, like D&D Mattresses was a sponsor this time, normally we don't let that small of a company be be a sponsor, but you know. Yeah, last week it was by and large. It's, well, I, yeah. I'm
1: really looking forward to next week's sponsor. Um, you know, well, we've, we've received a couple items in the mail, and oh, that's ooh, great! Well, test them out. Let
0: us know, and uh, that's going to do it.
2: I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. enjoying my coffee.
1: Who's sponsoring this uh, today's episode? I well, it's about to get to that. For fuck's sake! <laughs> I've
0: given you a second to put the clip in, as That's we always ear.
1: do. Thanks. It's, it's all digital, though. I don't need a don't need a second. So,
2: all right, guys. You need so to, you need to wait the length of the clip. for fuck's <laughs> sake!
0: This all episode right, who's the is. Sponsor? <laughs>
2: You know how I felt last week All right